Constitution, and I were looking at what was going on in academia. Uh, I had left academia, and he was a professor at the staunchly conservative institute called Portland State University, which he was, he found out was listed as one of the worst colleges in the country for free speech. So he went to the president of the university, got a meeting with the president and said, did you know this college has been listed as one of the worst colleges in the country for free speech? And the president replied to him, you know, sometimes you wanna be on those lists. That's what he said. And so that's kind of embarrassing. I just found out at LSU, they're also on that list. Um, and I think proudly as well. That's the state of how bad the left is. But we decided, we looked at what was going on. We looked and we, we realized a lot of this was coming out of departments like gender studies and uh, critical education theory. And we said, what in the world's going on here? We started looking at it and we realized that these people act very much like it's a religion. Like this critical religion of critique of if Marx was naming it ruthless, crit ruthless criticism of everything that exists. And we thought, well, if they're gonna act like a religion and they're gonna look at these academic journals, which are supposed to be the, the, the top level of knowledge production, knowledge dissemination, uh, policy deciding studies that we use in our society, if they're gonna look at those like a religious scripture that's infallible and unquestionable, then there's only one thing to do. You have to discredit their scripture to discredit their religion and you have to make fun of it to do that. So we decided to write a fake academic article by the bearing the title, The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. <laughs> and that was accepted in a rather low-tier journal. And there was quite a controversy because they said that it being accepted in such a low-tier journal didn't prove anything. And then our very friendly left-wing critics and staunchly conservative magazines like Salon told us exactly what we would have had to do in order to prove our point. So we said, you know what, okay, let's do that. So let's take a year and a half out of our lives and write as many of these papers as we can, submit them to the highest ranking journals that we can, and in the course of a year, if, you don't, if you're not an academic, you won't appreciate it. An academic article that goes through an academic journal is not like a magazine article or an op-ed. They usually, you write one or two a year if you're like kind of busting it as an academic. We wrote 20 that year. It was easy, because we made them up. <laughs> and we wrote the most preposterous things in the world, as Eric was kind of alluding to. So one of our papers, which did win an award for excellence in scholarship in the discipline of feminist geography, <laughs> explored the idea of rape culture among dogs. <laughs> and somehow led itself to the conclusion that what we can do is train men the way that we train dogs to end rape culture in our society. We argued that dog parks are, canine, are petri dishes of rape, canine rape culture in rape condoning spaces, and since rape condoning spaces and dog parks exist, so too in nightclubs, therefore men have to be leashed and shot collared and shouted at and trained with dog training manuals. And this was considered excellence in scholarship, won an award. That's true. Another paper we wrote, and I don't know, because a lot of these are not PG. Another paper we wrote um, suggested that the reason that men, that straight men, are transphobic is because they don't practice. I'll leave it at that. If you don't know what they're not practicing, don't ask. And that was called an important contribution to knowledge accepted and published in a leading sexualities journal. We wrote another paper where we took the 12th chapter of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, where he's now explained the problem. You know which problem. 
And then he says, now we need a movement to solve the problem. So chapter 12, he organizes the movement, and we took out our movement, replaced it with intersectional feminism, screwed around the words till it worked, and a social work journal accepted a chapter of Mein Kampf <laughs> from us. And all told, we had seven of our papers accepted, and we had seven more that were under review when finally the dog park paper got too much attention and the Wall Street Journal told on us. <laughs> and so if you want to know how crazy, I mean, if you really want to know how crazy their academic uh, enterprise has become, remember, the academic enterprise is their center of intellectual culture. It is the thing that when they come to the legislature, they trot out and say there is a study that shows that babies are racist by three months old. They show you an academic study proving this. You now have some idea of how bad and how crazy they are. And so we wanted to expose this, and we thought, well, if we expose this, that reason will step in and that'll solve the problem. No, it turned out that they, uh, the response to this, if you want to know, was simply to call us names, as you might expect, and to now require that you prove your identity with a driver's license or something when you submit an academic paper so that people can't trick them again. I guess since it's in the news, I should point out one more of our papers, not to, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of getting tired of talking about the papers, but Stephen Crowder just pumped a, a field called Fat Studies, which exists. It, it, it is not obesity. Obesity is a medicalizing narrative that is used to oppress fat people to say that they're a medical problem. It is not what you think. It is to glorify fat like a uh, support group turned into an academic discipline. And so we wrote a paper, uh, Stephen Crowder, I should say, just wrote a paper for a fat studies conference and got it, he's a conservative pundit, if you don't know who Stephen Crowder is, got it accepted. And then he actually dressed up, got makeup done and everything else as a fat woman and went to the conference to deliver the paper which is kind of really hilarious, but we wrote a Fat Studies paper too that advocated, this was accepted, it was the first paper that was published of ours, that advocated that bodybuilding is, fat, is fatphobic unless it includes a, uh, a, a, sorry, a competitive category called fat bodybuilding <laughs> that is a political exhibition of fat. And the whole sport needs to be shut down if they don't adjust by having a political exhibition of fat included in bodybuilding. And then an actual academic, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called, uh, what is it, okeophobia, the thing where people get weirded out by seeing, you know, honeycomb patterns or holes, and it grosses you out, and there's this weird phobia. So there's a neuroscientist that discovered this phenomenon by the name of Jeffrey Cole. He wrote a real academic paper after the fact saying that we had no ground to stand on whatsoever to say that fat bodybuilding is ridiculous. That's how bad academia is. That's how corrupt these studies are. That's the kind of stuff that the media is running with. That's the kind of stuff that policymakers are getting trotted out in front of them by lobbyists and by other people who want to influence how policy is made. And we thought this would end it, and it didn't end it. We got very stressed out by this. So I decided if I'm gonna be kind of an international face of this for a while, it was in like 400 newspapers worldwide. We had our picture in the Shanghai uh, South China Daily, which was a little weird. Um, front page of the New York Times, et cetera. If I'm gonna speak about this, I better really know it. So I had some sense of it to get seven research articles published in a, about a year and a month or something like that. But then I've gone full-time into this, and what I realized is that we have to understand what's actually happening in the country. And that's all fun but it, and funny, but it actually unveils something scary. What led me to dedicate my life at the time to doing what I do now, which is relentlessly study this and talk about it everywhere I can go around the country, uh, originally around the world, but then COVID screwed that up, 
and um, to relentlessly podcast about it and speak about it and write about it and do nothing else with it and get banned. My wife told me last week and I'm not allowed to say the word Marxism for 24 hours one day again in the house. Well, I figured I better really, really learn it. And what happened was one of these other fake papers we wrote was called the Progressive Stack, which is actually happening in classrooms around the country right now. I don't know if it's happening here in Tennessee. But the idea is that your privilege <coughs> determines whether or not you get to have access. The more privilege you have, the better you're already taken care of, the less access you get. So if you're a straight white male, for example, we invited you to listen and learn in silence. Your emails wouldn't be answered since you're a male, and obviously men obviously totally interrupt females all the time, that being a feminist trope then you would be interrupted on, on purpose by your instructor to teach you what that's like. We said that you could, in, you could, you could listen and learn in silence uh, sitting in the floor in chains so you could experience what that's like, like slavery, call it experiential reparations. And we sent this to the journal and the journal wrote back and we said, they said, this is great, but there's a problem because we thought it'd be really funny to say let's abuse college students and kids but let's do it compassionately. So we argued that it had to be done with something called critically compassionate intellectualism. And they said, the problem is the compassion. That recenters the needs of the privileged. You need to take the compassion out. You need to center discomfort. And I was like, holy crap, this is a genocide. This isn't funny anymore. This is a genocide in the making. And then I was really shocked last year when cities were burning after, was that last year? Oh my God, it's two years ago. Two years ago, when cities were burning after St. Floyd died, and I heard Representative AOC stand up and say that change is supposed to be uncomfortable. You're supposed to experience the discomfort because that's what it feels like when you get over privilege. And I was like, that is the pedagogy of discomfort that we were required by the reviewers to add to that paper. And I thought something really bad is going on here. And what is going on is, and I will welcome you to it in case you did not know what's happening, I would like to welcome you to the American Communist Revolution. We are now a couple years into it in earnest. This is a communist revolution of the entire West that if it gets America, it wins, and if it doesn't get America, it probably loses. And we've already talked about the one thing that stands in their way more than anything else, the Bill of Rights. The exact asset forfeiture thing that we were talking about, the Fourth Amendment that we're talking about, is one of these rights that's been enumerated by our rather genius founders that stands in their way. Because the Fourth Amendment protects private property. And Karl Marx said in the Communist Manifesto, which I'll bet you very few of you have read, in the second chapter, very clearly, communism can be summarized in a single sentence, which is not a sentence, abolition of private property. The entire ideology of communism is the abolition, or seizure, really, of private property. And they're subtle and they're tricky. You'll notice that they screw around with words. You say, you can't teach critical race theory. They say, that's not critical race theory. It's culturally responsive teaching, CRT. Uh, you'll notice that they're pretty tricky. So I don't know if this is happening. Maybe the UT students can tell me if there are land acknowledgments at the University of Tennessee yet. Are there? Where they stand up and they say, we acknowledge that this land is taken from the Cherokee tribe and the such and such tribe and blah, 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 blah. We just want to honor the... You know what that is? That's a confession that you have stolen property, which the Fourth Amendment doesn't protect. And you don't have to change a word of the Bill of Rights and you can undermine the Constitution. I'm waiting for that to actually happen in California. I'm sort of excited. <laughs> I wish they would seize Berkeley. 
Man, I wish. This is really what's happening, though, in our country. So to understand, I have to explain the what and the how. The why is obvious. Power. Power and control. So we don't have to talk about the why. The people doing this want power. They want control. Of what? Of you. Complete control of you, as a matter of fact. Down to the level of your cognitive liberty, not just your freedom of speech. Your ability to think for yourself. Which they will dictate to you, and before they can implant anything in your head, through conditioning, through an algorithm that feeds you the information they want you to have and not the information they don't want you to have. That's the why. Absolute, total social control that's unbreakable. The Chinese social credit system is level one of this program. The American variant will be called ESG, Environmental Social Governance, and it's already installed in virtually every corporation and major institution in this country. Do you know what the S is? Social, Environmental Social and Governance. Social is short for social justice. Guess, with, guess which movement we're talking about? The same one. Why is every company in the world woke? Because ESG. Because if they're woke, their ESG score goes up. Then their assets are managed better. Then they have access to investment capital. Then they don't get shut out of access to capital. They aren't woke because they want to. They aren't woke because they're crazy. They're not woke because a bunch of college graduates filled their boardrooms. They're woke because the bull on Wall Street has a ring through its nose called ESG. Total control is the why. You can actually see how that works out in practice, but they have to overcome the Bill of Rights. They have to overcome the Constitution. They have to get us there first. So the what of what's happening is Marxism. The how of what's happening is Maoism. And that's a relationship that history has showed works. The Marxist theory gets applied by somebody who knows how to apply a cultural revolution, and it works. You rot the culture from inside, you create the revolutionary conditions, and then you seize power through their abuses. And it works. That's why they're using it again. So what is Marxism? Because you thought I was going to talk about critical race theory. Well, I am. What is Marxism? I want to summarize for you Marxism as kind of quickly and simply as I can. I want to just say it's a religion. It's an inversion of the gospel. It's an inversion of the entire Bible, as a matter of fact. But that's a Gnostic inversion if you're really a theological dork. But that's a little too abstruse. Basically, the idea of Marx, the idea Marx had, he wrote this in his, in, in his 1844 manuscript called the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts, is that man creates man. And the way man creates man is by creating society. So man creates his society. The society, in turn, creates conditions that he called social relations. And those social relations socialize or condition man through what the kids call social constructions. And then that makes who the men are. And then the men create more society, and that creates new social relations and new conditions. And then that creates man again. And up until the point of Karl Marx, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, that's what Karl Marx thought, this was happening blindly. This was happening by chance. This was happening by what you might call natural selection in the cultural domain. And Marx said, no, if we understand that the evolution of man has a purpose, has a finishing point, has a teleology, as the theologians would call it, has a telos, the people who are conscious of that can direct it. They can seize the means of the production, not of material goods, which then condition the social conditions, thus then making man, but of man himself. And what Marx said 
is that we can induce into man a consciousness called social consciousness, or socialism is the ideology of social consciousness. So we can transform man into socialist man, and socialist man will make socialist society. And man will be his own creator. It's a blind process until you hit the moment of awakening with Karl Marx, and Karl Marx has laid down, as he said, the Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, the scientific socialism that understands that the end point for humanity is the Garden of Eden, let back in. Throwing down God as the person, the jailer, who threw us out of our birthright. And the way back in is by realizing that it was false all along and claiming the knowledge from the tree that we ate upon. The special secret knowledge. So society is going to evolve but if you seize the means of its production, you can control an artificial selection, the means of its, its development. And you can take it to its natural endpoint, which is the garden, which is communism, in his view. A perfect, stateless, classless society in which there is no antagonism. Where everything is returned to bounty and sharing. So communism, in its, or Marxism, in its simplest essence, is the belief that there are two types of men, conscious and unconscious, and if we leave the development of society to the unconscious, all they'll do is reproduce the relationships of domination and oppression in new forms forever, but if the conscious sees those means, we can direct man to become socialist man in socialist society, which will eventually work out all of its contradictions and become stateless and classless with no need to administer it any longer into a perfect state called communism that reproduces the Garden of Eden. One of the most prominent communists of the 1960s, Herbert Marcuse, wrote in his second biggest uh, English language work called Eros and Civilization, that the entire point of the project is in fact to take the bite, a second bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and thus regain access to the garden. That's what communism is about, getting the special knowledge to do this. So how does communism work? Obviously these people write thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of complete bilge, it's not simple, it seems. It has this idea that the society is in fact separated by the existence of private property, which is why it wants to abolish that. It's called stratification into the haves and have-nots. That story about the star-bellied sneetches that they banned is very important. The haves represent what he calls the superstructure of society. They have access to a special kind of property called capital and they weave a special kind of thought, an ideology, a mythology, that says why capital is good and why they should have access to it, like that they worked hard for it, that they got educated, that it's the product of their merit. That's what we call meritocracy. They weave an ideology that justifies their access to the special capital, or the special property called capital. And in so doing, they also exclude everybody else from access to that special form of private property. That's the infrastructure, but the irony is that the infrastructure does all the productive work in society. They produce the food with their sickle, they produce the material goods with their hammer. And so they're being exploited. The superstructure doesn't produce anything useful, it just creates mythologies to justify its own existence and domination. And so the ideology of communism, as Marx laid it out, is that if you awaken the people in this lower position, the proletariat out of the working class, you awaken them to their class consciousness, 
and you agitate them to understand that they're being exploited, and you give them the picture in their class consciousness of the role they play in shaping history to its final intended endpoint of communist utopia, which is the Garden of Eden turned upside down, then you can have a revolution. And they can seize the means of production and install a dictatorship of the proletariat that will administer this economy in pastiche to create those economic and material conditions that will slowly introject the morality into man to make him social man by changing him bit by bit through artificial selection until finally he doesn't know how to live without communism and so he f produces a society that produces what he needs which is communism he realizes his true nature according to the hegelian dialectic as it were and so what marx says is that there's an antagonism between a natural consequential antagonism between the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class, and the proletariat. They're in class conflict. And that class conflict gives the nature of social reality, which is class antagonism. And so you have this antagonistic theory between the haves and the have-nots. And that lends the consciousness to the people who can be awakened to seize the means and control the direction of society to remake man in man's own image. That's communism, I told you it's a religion. If you don't believe me, I know it's not fun reading, but you really should go read the 1844 manuscripts called the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts. It's really some dark reading. This is communism in the nutshell. The infrastructure and the superstructure in what he calls a dialectic antagonistic relationship. They define one another. Neither can exist without the other, that's dialectical, but they're against one another, intrinsically in conflict. And in the process of that conflict, they create these social relations through the material conditions and how we deal with those conditions and how they deal with one another. And those social relations condition the range of one's subjectivity, what they're able to imagine in the world and not. And what you can imagine in the world is what you make, according to Marx's ontology of man. So they create this antagonism creates a structure to society between the superstructure and infrastructure. This structure is deterministic in how you think and how you feel and how you understand. The contents of your character, if you will, are shaped by your position in the social and economic hierarchy. Marx laid it out in terms of economic material conditions, but that's not the only way this can be done. The structure of society permeates everything. And like I said, the people who have access to that special form of property for Marx's capital create an ideology, which he called capitalism, to justify this. This is why, if you didn't know, by the way, Marx coined the word capitalism. Capitalism is, in fact, a caricature of a free market economy. It's everything he could find that was wrong with it turned into a bundle and then saying that's what the people on top want. So what does this determinism with your character do? Well, if you're in the upper class, it makes you think it's natural and justified and deserved and that you have all of these reasons to want to keep that natural, justified, deserved, higher status position and keep everybody else out. And if you're lower, you come up with things like the opium of the masses. You invent a god and create a religion to say, well, that's just how it is. Have faith. It's better in the afterlife. The sigh of an oppressed people. They won't fight back if they're content thinking that this is just how it is. They'll never wake up. That they'll have it better later if they do their part here. They'll never wake up and they'll never fight. This is Marxism in a nutshell. Now, 
In the 1960s, Marxists finally admitted the truth. They're not really quick to do that. A man by the name of Max Horkheimer, who defined a thing called critical theory, which is the operating system of what is known as critical Marxism, which is Western Marxism in the 20th century, said in an interview, Marx believed incorrectly. Marx was wrong, he said. Marx believed that capitalism would immiserate the worker. But in fact, capitalism does not immiserate the worker. It allows him to build a better life. That's a direct quote, except that it was in German. It allows him to build a better life. And he said, well, this is the problem. This is why we invented the critical theory, because it turns out we realized you can't envision the idealized society from within the context of the existing society. But we can criticize those aspects of the existing society that we wish to change. And he's echoed by the guy I just mentioned a minute ago, Herbert Marcuse, who is his compatriot in the so-called Frankfurt School, which is formerly known as the Institute for Social Research, which had the original name, the Institute for Marxism, until its funder said, don't do that, it's too on the nose. And they said, capitalism delivers the goods. Not only does it allow, this is Herbert Marcuse, not only does it allow the worker to build a better life, it delivers a good life. And so it stabilizes the working class. The working class becomes a stable, conservative force. It wants to keep what it's able to earn. It likes the society that allows it to earn a stable, modest existence. So it can no longer even picture certain historical possibilities that have become regarded as utopian possibilities, which is about 400 syllables that mean communism. Their revolutionary consciousness has been stolen from them. And as a matter of fact, they're not just conservative, they're often counter-revolutionary. The working class, he says, is not where we're going to get our revolution. We have to look where the vital needs are. And where are those vital needs, says Herbert Marcuse in 1969. And I quote, so I don't get in trouble, the ghetto population. The ghetto population, the racial minorities, the feminists, the sexual minorities, the unemployed, the radicals and the outcasts, they have the vital needs for the revolution. They, he says, in his own words, need to become the new working class that we're going to turn to. Who's going to teach these people to be Marxists, though? The students who will go into colleges and radicalize in college classrooms. And so the student movement will radicalize and inform the ghetto population, say in the black nationalist movement, and turn their black nationalism into Marxism. And it will radicalize the feminists and make sure that they're Marxist feminists. And it will take the sexual liberation movement that they had already sparked themselves. Remember his other book was Eros and Civilization, like erotic, like that. We'll take the sexual revolution energy and we'll channel that into Marxist theory through the students who are easy to radicalize. And all of a sudden what you have is Marxism abandoning the working class without almost any academic somehow able to notice it. And in fact, taking up identity politics as it came to be called in 1977 through his acolytes in a black feminist socialist organization called the Combahee River Collective who coined that term we're going to shift into identity politics to bring the Marxist theory to a new working class. 
And so this is the birth of what I call identity Marxism, which goes by the name you've probably heard, intersectionality. The stratification is the multiple axes of identity, race, sex, gender, sexuality, etc. The entire objective is to raise a class consciousness within those identity categories so that you can have the exact same thing as the class consciousness of Marx. Make them realize that they are an oppressed minority that can only achieve its liberation by, by, by joining together in a solidarity movement and radicalizing and overthrowing the whole of the existing society by seizing the means of production and installing a dictatorship now of the anti-racists. This is the shift from Marxism to identity Marxism. And this is where you find critical race theory emerging. This is where you find gender studies and thus gender theory, or what I would say gender Marxism emerging. This is where you see sexuality Marxism, or sometimes it's just learned today that it's sometimes called homo Marxism, um, emerging in what we is formally known as queer theory. This is why Leah Thomas is a big deal and why a nominee for the Supreme Court wouldn't dare try to define a woman the other day. Because the left that she's captured by will eat her alive. They should eat her alive, and you can tell that they're just a bunch of power-hungry hypocrites because she invoked biology, which means she did a transphobe, and, but they didn't care. I'm not a biologist, I don't know what a woman is. So biology determines what women are? If a conservative had said that, it would have been over, transphobic. So you can tell that this is just a self-serving power grab. This is why your pronouns are on your, your papers. So I did mention that, yeah. Because you have to raise that consciousness. So now I need to tell you about a little bit of identity Marxism. Critical race theory is race Marxism. If you want a long-winded argument about it, I just published a book by that title, it's easy to find. Queer theory is, I guess, homo Marxism or sexual Marxism or gender Marxism, whatever you want to do, all three, sex, gender, sexuality, Marxism. And these two pieces are how we're gonna to get to the Maoism. These two pieces, critical race theory, I mean there's other, we talk about the fat studies, that's fat Marxism, I'm 100% dead serious, as funny as that sounds. Everybody knows socialism starves everybody, there's no fat Marxists. <laughs> it's the only thing that socialism cures is obesity. <laughs> it's true. R Russians hungry, not starving. Walter Duranty, covering for the Ukrainian Holodomor and got a Pulitzer Prize for it that the New York Times is still proud to claim. Communism is as communism does. So race Marxism, what did I say Marxism is? Special kind of capital, or special kind of property called capital, creates access to, people who have access to that create an ideology called capitalism, justifying their access to it and the exclusion of the lower class from it, thus creating a class antagonism, blah, 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 and a structure of society that conditions how people think and understand the world. Okay, critical race theory. It starts with assumption, it starts with things like racism is the ordinary state of affairs in society, not an aberration from them, it's so-called normal science. That's a direct quote from Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard Delgado, one of the self-avowed Marxists who was present at the naming and founding conference of Critical Race Theory in Madison, Wisconsin in 1989. But that's boring. There is a special kind of property. We turn to a paper from 1993 by a woman named Cheryl Harris called Whiteness as Property. And what does she say that whiteness is? Whiteness is a kind of bourgeois private property that white people have designed as cultural property to give to themselves, including the fundamental right to exclude everybody else from it. 
So there's a special kind of property that allows you to have access to the upper echelons of society. The people who have it create an ideology called white supremacy for why they get it, other people don't get it, and other people need to be excluded from it. The other people are called people of color. The class antagonism between the white supremacist superstructure and the uh, people of color infrastructure creates a structural racism that conditions society, creates what they call structural determinism that, that, that determines the range of your subjectivity and thus your values and your character. The point is to awaken a racial class consciousness so that you will want to understand your role in history to overthrow this system, to completely abolish whiteness. No such thing as a positive white identity, Robin D'Angelo tells us in White Fragility. She strives to be less white, she tells us in White Fragility. Coca-Cola made it a uh, training for their company last year, for their employees, to train to be less white. Because critical race theory can be summarized in a single sentence. That isn't a sentence. Abolition of whiteness. Whiteness is a form of property that white people erected and gave to themselves to exclude everybody else from the good life. It is a Marxist theory of race stratification and conflict. Which is why it plays out exactly like communism would. What about queer theory? Every time I try to talk about queer theory, people, somebody raises their hand, what is queer theory? Queer theory is a war on the normal. It's literally a war on the normal. There's even a paper in queer theory called Queering Queer Theory because they thought it started to get too normalized. It's true. I thought it was really funny. I thought I wanted to make, I wanted to write that as one of our fake papers, and that's how I discovered that it already existed. <laughs> queer theory says that queer is an identity without an essence. So it is that which is not normal. In a paper that was very influential in education from 2019 by a woman named Hannah Dyer, who's a significant queer theorist. I say woman, oh my God. I don't know. I'm not even going to try to guess the pronouns of Hannah Dyer. This paper says a lot of people make the mistake of believing that queer theory is about creating a stable LGBTQ identity for LGBTQ children because it's specifically written in terms of early childhood development and early childhood education is what this paper is about. She said nothing can be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, it's to make sure that identity is never stable. It's always fluid, always changing, always changeable, always transforming, just like society is supposed to transform. So queer theory outlines that there's a special kind of property called normalcy. Normal people give themselves access to it by defining the limits of what's normal and what is not, what's acceptable and what is too far. And they exclude from the good life everybody else who's not normal in some way, mentally ill, gender minority, sexual minority, made up gender, made up sexuality, made up romantic orientation, yeah, they're that narcissistic. And so there's a class antagonism between the normal and the abnormal, which is a medicalizing term used by psychiatrists to exclude those people from the full range of participation in society and discourse. And the goal is to awaken a queer political identity which means somebody who realizes that normalcy itself, like the idea that we know what men and women are, or that men and women are different, or that the definitions of men and women are not up for grabs. 
That is the thing that has to be overthrown. The act of categorization is characterized by Judith Butler, one of the early and most prominent queer theorists, as a violence of categorization. It is a form of violence because it excludes people who don't meet the criterion of normalcy from the full participation in society, which can only be accomplished by an act of exclusionary violence. And so this creates a system, an ideology, I should say, called cis-heteronormativity, by which it's enforced, which creates a structure to society that is cis-heteronormative society, that cis refers to men are men and women are women. Hetero obviously means that most people are straight. And to say normativity means that there is not just an on average, it's a pun, they play a trick with the word norm. Not just like a bell curve, mostly the people in the middle are one thing, or, you know, are, are, are straight, only 3% or 4% of people are gay, it turns out. Or that a very small fraction have severe enough gender dysphoria to qualify as trans in some way that liberals would recognize as meritorious of uh, doing some kind of intervention. That's being normal in the statistical sense, and they say, well, there's a normativity, a moral expectation that you must be that way as well, that enforces normalcy on people who don't necessarily identify with it and are alienated from who they actually are, just like Marx said, is what the product of uh, private property and the division of labor does. It alienates you from your labor and your product of your labor. And so queer theory reproduces Marxism in the gender, sex, sexuality, also health and mental health dimensions. Which is why you'll see a lot of people, y'all's age, college kids, putting on their little social media bios that all their personality disorders. I'm so-and-so, he, him, blah, 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 borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, more narcissistic personality disorder, more narcissistic personality disorder, really narcissistic, <laughs> etc. Me, 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 me. Pay attention to me. I'm not stable in my identity. I've been groomed by queer theory to remain unstable in my identity, which also means mo uh, moldable. Not just in terms of who I think I am, but don't know who I am, but also politically, because I have to be politically queer. If you really want to get even deeper into this, since I know we got education folks in here, there's a guy by the name of Paulo Freire, he's a Marxist educator that is, all of our education system is Freirean education. He wrote a book called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed in 1970 that is kind of the uh, sacred bible of colleges of education in virtually every one of them. I don't know what's happening at UT, but I bet you, I would bet you probably my car. It's significant there. Paulo Freire recreated this exact same dynamic. There's a form of special property that people get called literacy or educated within the existing system. They created ideology of what that means. It means to be educated or competent in the existing system that enforces who gets to be educated and who doesn't, who's literate and who isn't. And he, re -expand, he expanded and redefined the definition of literacy to mean not just can you read basic literacy, not just functional literacy, can you derive meaning from what you read, but also political literacy, can you understand the full historical context and political relevance of what you experience in life and the way that the word connects to that. If you wonder how religious he is, Paulo Freire said that the point of this literacy education, which is now obviously blatantly Marxist, the dynamic now being between the, what the society considers educated and illiterate, 
He said the point of this is to teach people the political literacy so that they can speak the word such that they proclaim the world. That's a direct quote. He brings it up over and over again. If you're familiar with your John chapter 1, that should make you a little uncomfortable, or maybe your Genesis chapter 1. That's what this is up against, or that's what this is all about. Marx, by the way, speaking of, you know, I said the Frankfurt School was originally called the Institute for Marxism. Marx's Communist Manifesto had a different title at first, too. In 1847, when he wrote the draft, and Engels said, don't call it that. They'll know. It was called the Communist Confession of Faith. You can look that up. It's true. So now you have these Marxist theories of identity. I've given you a couple. The education one. I've given you the, cr the critical race theory, race Marxism. I've given you queer Marxism, whatever we're going to call that one, from queer theory. And here's how it becomes Maoism. Mao Zedong implemented a cultural revolution. I'm not going to go into the whole history of Mao because I see people standing in the back that are basically warning me that I'm wasting your time. <laughs> but in 1966, Mao came back to power. He came back to power after being expelled because the Great Leap Forward was a catastrophe and killed tens of millions of Chinese people. He came back to power and he instituted a cultural revolution. How? Radicalizing students, just like Marcuse recommended. How did he radicalize students? Well, it's really easy, it turns out. College students, a little harder, but they're very idealistic. They're ready to listen to some theory, etc. So you get their big, fancy, smart professors and you get them all whipped up. You can imagine how easy it might be to whip up a college student, but kids are even easier. All you gotta do is give them like special lunch and a feather in their hat, or a red hat, or something different and special, and that they get to have if they're the right kind of kid, and they don't get to have if they're the wrong kind of kid. And you kind of bully the wrong kind of kid, and you give special privileges and opportunities, and, and you let them you know, wear special uniforms to the right kind of kid. So he defined 10 identity categories. Doesn't this sound familiar? 10 identity categories. Five were black for fascism for bad, and five were red for uh, communism for good. The five black categories were rich farmer, landlord, counter-revolutionary, bad influence, so that's what Merrick Garland called parents, and right-winger. And if your parent was one of those, you as a child were also a black identity, and therefore you couldn't participate in the cool stuff at school and got the crappy lunch and didn't get a feather and, or whatever it was. And so you just create a really easy social pressure funnel to get the kids to want to adopt identities like laborer, no they can't do that one, or peasant, they can't do that one, or revolutionary. And then you can funnel them into the Red Guard. The Red Guard has a job. The Red Guard was meant to go out and destroy the four olds of society because if you're going to induce communism you have to stop the old culture. You have to create a break from one generation to the next between the old culture and the new. A total break. Mao said you have to destroy the four olds, the suju. The suju were old culture, old customs, old habits, and old ways of thinking. And so you get the kids and you say, well, you don't get to have the special lunch, and this isn't really a big deal when they're seven, except they'll rat you out like so fast. They'll rat your black identity parents out so fast. But when you get them to about 15, they'll go home and beat you because they don't get to have the special privileges anymore because you have the wrong identity, the wrong ideology, you're a right winger and a bad influence according to the government and their teacher. The teachers that aren't doing this with them, they'll beat them too. They have black identities. Mr. Jones has a black identity, go get him. And then you'll go, they'll send these radicals out into society just like after George Floyd died and they'll tear, tear down statues, they'll burn down buildings, they'll raid temples, they'll tear down all the vestiges of old culture and they'll destroy the old culture and usher in a new one. 
helmed by the communist Mao Zedong, who's the one giving them the special privileges. Maoism is how it works. So how are we doing this? Well, you've got critical race theory, gender theory, et cetera, going into the schools all over this country, including in this state. And then you tell kids, you are complicit in a system of racism because of critical race theory. You have a bad identity, but you can become an ally. And you can have a good identity, but your allyship's not good enough. So this is gonna be twisted on you and twisted on you and twisted on you. You're still white. You're still upholding white supremacy. You're still upholding whiteness. Representative Ayanna Presley said at the end of 2020, we don't want any more black faces who don't want to be black voices. We don't want any more brown faces who don't want to be brown voices. This comes straight out of critical race theory and their doctrine of structurally determined unique voice of color. But what is she actually saying? Well, if you're a minority kid and you're not upholding the critical race theory line, then you need to become politically black, as Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project, clumsily put it on Twitter. So you have a black identity unless you are an activist, but you can become a, a, a political activist for critical race theory and you have a positive identity now. And if you run for governor as a conservative Larry Elder, you're the black face of white supremacy. This is why. Everything you're seeing has a simple explanation, which is identity Marxism. And now you take these poor kids, these poor white kids especially, poor, poor white girls in particular, who have this allyship problem. They can't do it right. They're trying. Ally is a red identity, if you will, but it's not really a good one because you just keep screwing it up and you keep recentering the needs of the privilege, namely yourself. But wow, what if you were to just transition or become pansexual or adopt a minority gender identity that doesn't exist? There are 200 of them. Well, then you can have, you can be white and have actually a positive identity because you're now in the queer politics camp, which will be left untouched by the race politics camp because it's convenient, because it creates this social pressure. Never mind that you have 13 year old girl, get, girls getting double mastectomies, taking hormones, and doing genital uh, surgeries that are going to ruin them for life, make them pharmaceutical patients for life, render them infertile for life, destroy their lives without ameliorating their suicide rate one iota, in fact, making it slightly worse as the data are showing. They're useful political tools and they've been pressured through a Maoist campaign of bad racial identities, bad sexual identities versus good racial and sexual identities, which are activist in nature by definition. Pete Buttigieg, whose father translated Antonio Gramsci, one of the biggest communist theorists of the 1920s and 30s, into English, ran for president as a gay man in the Democratic Party, and they wrote articles. He might be married to a man, he might sleep with a man, but he's not politically gay. Because he wasn't flamboyant. He wasn't a queer activist. He wears suits and dresses normally and doesn't talk about being gay all the time. So you can force people to become political activists for your cause or a red guard. So then when somebody like George Floyd dies in ugly looking circumstances, you can get them to set your cities on fire. And then you can have the representatives come out and say change is supposed to be uncomfortable. In fact, they use the exact saying. That's just property. Whiteness is property. They're just abolishing whiteness. And this is a long overdue racial reckoning in this country. And then when the 
cop who was implicated in his death was found guilty on three counts, they immediately came out by our criminal justice system. They immediately came out in the first 10 minutes, AOC and Bernie Sanders both stuck out for me and said, this isn't justice, it's merely accountability. Justice is way down the line. So what's justice? The dictatorship of the anti-racists, and I fully mean that, is meant to enforce equity. Ibram Kendi in 2019 came out and wrote an article for Political Magazine, we fix inequality by passing a, since this is a Bill of Rights banquet, constitutional amendment for anti-racism, an anti-racist constitutional amendment. What would that do? First of all, it would create a department of anti-racism that staffs only formally trained experts in racism, in other words, critical race theorists, party members, apparatchiks. What would it have the power to do? Pre-clear all local, state, and federal public policies to make sure they don't real yield racial inequity. Monitor private policy to make sure it doesn't in, uh, create racial inequity. Monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas or policies and have disciplinary tools wielded over these people if they won't voluntarily change their racist ideas and policy. That, my friends, is a dictatorship of the anti-racists and his call was for a constitutional amendment to create this fourth completely unaccountable race communist branch of government that has power over literally everything staffed by people that he handpicks. And we all think that he's dumb because he is. But he's repackaged the dictatorship of proletariat exactly in anti-racism. So we are undergoing a cultural revolution. Equity is the equivalent of socialism, which is the administered state in which the contradictions that remain are worked out and forced by dictatorship until that morality is injected into the population until they don't know how to live without it. At the long end of that process in socialism, it becomes spontaneous and the state, Marx tells us, the dictatorship, Marx tells us, will wither away because it's not needed anymore. Because that's how state power usually works. That's how cartels usually operate. And what do you have here? We have equity. And if you administer equity long enough through a dictatorship of the anti-racists, long down the road, we'll get to racial justice. So racial justice or social justice means identity Marxist communism. This is the American communist revolution and they've had a two year jump on us besides a 50 year lead up. While we were asleep at the wheel and gave them education, gave them our colleges and universities, gave them our children, gave them our media, gave them portions of our law, have allowed them to colonize medicine so that now we're having race preference medical care. They even tried that with those vaccines, which is really, really funny because they also talk about the Tuskegee experiments and people remember that, but then they've decided to say that they're gonna do it again. They are race preferencing care. They have colonized and I mean colonized, most of our cultural institutions because we've been asleep at the wheel and let them. We thought when the Berlin, Berlin Wall came down, history ended. Communism was over. No, it had changed forms. It had turned into identity Marxism. It had taken up identity politics and it had wormed its way into every institution under cutesy brand names like diversity, equity, inclusion. I don't know how many DEI deans University of Tennessee has, but I was just in Oklahoma, which is the reddest state apparently, by their own definition, and they at University of Oklahoma have over 100, all of whom are pulling down six-figure uh, salaries, all of whom are embedded, why do they have over 100? Because every single department has one. 
They're on average, we found out, digging around while I was in the state house, hiring a new one every two days. Six-figure salaries for these administrators. And what is their job? It is to enforce this ideology so the university looks good and its ESG score goes up. That's what, that's how, that's why. What can you do? I get asked that a lot. I mean, this is a cultural revolution. What can you do? I always tell people, I don't know, what can you do? I told the people in the state house in Oklahoma that completely defunding and firing every administrator implementing DEI would be a good start. I talked to a woman in Wisconsin who told me about how her friends and family decided that they were just going to start having neighborhood get-togethers where the kids would start to play together and the parents would start to talk together. And they would start to whisper, I don't know about all this stuff. The next thing you know, they had a whole little network. Similar thing I found out happened in Utah. They formed an organization out of it called Utah Parents United and they ended up with over 70,000 parents and grandparents united that show up and take action at the, at the state house or at the county uh, courthouse or whatever else they need to do whenever one of these stupid policies is proposed or they want to try to overturn one or they need somebody supported to get elected. I heard some of those people are here tonight. So people start to network. Other people do support stuff for that. Other people read this crap like I do and come and talk to people who are more practical than people who just read stuff and tell people about it. What can you do? I don't know. What can you do? But you need to figure it out and you need to do something. You need to, if you're a prayer, you need to figure out what you, you need to pray and ask what your gifts of the spirit are and figure it out. Maybe what you do is you bake sale and you fund the campaign of somebody who's got a spine who'll actually stand up for this. Maybe you have a spine and you find yourself running for an office you never thought you would take. All I know is we need all hands on deck. You can turn around a cultural revolution. The Hungarians did in 1919. The Hungarian Soviet Republic lasted four months. A parents' revolution pushed it out of power. Do you know why? Because their deputy commissar of education, George Lukács, whose work inspired the educator Paulo Freire that I just spoke about a moment ago. George Lukács had a program. He knew one thing better than anything else. If you want to sever a society one generation from the next, the easiest way to do that is to sexualize the children. They will come home and they will say, Mom, Dad, you don't understand me. Things are different now. Our state, our culture, our Hungarian culture, our American culture is old-fashioned. It needs to change. It's been oppressive. So you'll sever them from family, you'll sever them from nation, and when somebody holds up the Bible, they'll say, that's got it backwards too. That's an old document made for oppression. That is the opium of the people created by man to hold us down and keep us oppressed. And you will sever them from their family, their nation, and their religion, and their culture, just like that. And it turned out the Hungarian parents didn't like the sexualization of children one bit. And they revolted. So if you don't know, and if you want to be active, there's a very simple thing you can do. If you don't know, you need to go look up the book Gender Queer today. There are several books like this. They're in school libraries and sometimes curriculum, depending on the state, all across this country. I don't know what schools they might be in in this state. Probably not zero. I think I was in Williamson County. I think they said that it is there in Franklin in the library, you should look up this book and see what's in it. There are young people here, so I won't tell you what's in it. It's positively grooming and pornographic, though, in sometimes elementary school libraries. So something else you can do is get a copy of that book. 
Give them the 45 cents or whatever royalty to the author, who cares? Get a copy of that book and take it around, read it, and then show everybody. This is what they're doing to children in schools. Ask the school your children go to, is this book here? Start FOIA requesting. Hammer anybody who's doing this stuff with information requests and make it as public as you can. These are things you can do. Show people this book, Genderqueer, I'm telling you. If you want to turn around a cultural revolution, look at the Hungarians. The line that gets drawn in the sand that no parent will cross is the sexualization of children. This movement and identity politics using Maoism in a new form, Neo-Maoism, which I've already told you about, is doing that on purpose and cannot get out of it now. Critical race theory is not strong enough on its own. They have to do the sexualization. That's their Achilles heel. So that's something else you can do. Kind of in a bigger, broad picture, I will remind you where I started other than about the funny ha-ha papers that we were laughing and then you realize it's really serious. The single most important document in the world to stopping global communism is the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights. <laughs> Finding ways to make sure that document, which by itself is no shield, it is, a, it is as the left says, a worthless piece of paper if no one will stand up and defend it. You need to work tirelessly to understand that document, to find people and vet people who understand that document, who want to fill political offices, and make sure those people have support they need to get into those offices and uphold the oath that they take and they fill those offices. That's the most important thing. The Constitution is their downfall, and it must be defended. If you know more practical things to do, like actually getting rid of the entire DEI administration, that's wonderful too if you have that power. Gotta get them out of power, I'm telling you. This is the fight of our lives. Like I told you earlier, cognitively, the ability to think, the thought itself is what's on the line. Marcuse, in fact, Herbert Marcuse, who I mentioned, said that with the reactionary, the way you stop them is preventing the thought from even entering the mind. That's how you prevent, he said, very histrionically, after a world war. You have to defend those freedoms. We have to think hard about how we expand those freedoms in the digital, technological, and financial era of the 21st century, where the financial instruments that we now have with digital financial instruments and the tech instruments that we have so that our public square has gone into something that Mark Zuckerberg can push a button and control, we have to think about what property rights, free speech rights, et cetera, mean in that era. And that has to be defended, and it has to be defended right now. Or we're going to lose our country, we're going to lose everything. And the children that we keep referring to are not going to have a future whatsoever. Total control is the why. So thank you for letting me come scare the crap out of you. Thank you. This is what's happening in the world. It's not confusing, it's evil. So, check to uh, Knox Liberty Organization and that will go to fund conservative candidates. It also works on liberty issues. Some of you might be aware 
we were involved with uh, capping the city of Knoxville tax, and lo and behold, now it's in the news that we're likely going to hit a tax increase in the city of Knoxville. But we do work on other issues too. So just trying to tax liberty organization. We do got PayPal links. I'm trying to think if we got it up on a website. Yeah, yeah, the PayPal link. You can talk to me uh, text the to everybody in this room actually has received that. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, next question. You need an envelope. Like, you need the thing on the table. <laughs> Any other questions? I'm also involved with the conversation here. I have a phone out and I shot on the able to actually go in and sign the letter so if, if anybody's interested in, in communicating on uh, fund the police uh, it, it's real simplified I didn't didn't have to do anything so just, just wanted to pass that on I'll just add a comment since it's about fund the police I want to point out that defund the police was not stupid it was a strategic thing it is not to get rid of the police it's to transform the police into a Stasi that's how you do it it's called in communist theory it's called entryism the idea of how you enter into an institution and take it over. So the idea is that you make conditions intolerable for good people, so then they quit, or you defund them, so then you don't have enough, and then you have a crisis, and you're like, oh my God, we have to hire lots of new cops. Oh my God, we have to hire lots of new military. We've got to recruit, blah, blah, blah. There's a crisis at hand. But you put a DEI policy or a party politics policy in place in the meantime, so the only people you hire are Stasi, as opposed to good cops. And so you definitely don't want to allow defunding of the police because it's a two-step process to, or three-step process to fill, uh, to, to create a loyal police to the party, not to the people. Hi, um, thank you for a great presentation. I was wondering if there's some relationship between this CRT stuff and things like climate change, which also seems to be some, you know, society-driven nonsense. There are two. Yes, there are two primarily primary ones. One of those is theoretical. So you'll notice that if you listen to these people and they talk about climate change, they often mention another phrase, climate justice, and now we know that justice means neo-communism. And so if you read what climate justice is about, they'll talk about how different changes to the environment are, are created predominantly by white Western people and impact predominantly poor brown people in other countries. And so there's this race dimension and this kind of colonial dimension that's integrated into it. So they use the critical race theory in order to do this. So that's a theoretical connection between them. The practical connection is actually the ESG. S is social justice, but E is environmental policy. And so the same exact ring through the bull of the nose at Wall Street, which is created by the exact same activists who think the social justice crap is a great idea. They're the so-called stakeholders that, like Bill Gates who are gonna determine for us, who by the way, fun, Bill Gates funds more of this stuff in education than virtually anybody else. If you go look at some weird woke education initiative, you'll probably find that Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gave it lots of money. But uh, these people become the so-called technocrats or the so-called stakeholders, I should say, that are gonna dictate what sound environmental policy, social policy, et cetera, is. So at a practical level, it's these same morons making the, same, making the decisions about what constitutes good environmental policy, bad environmental policy, and they are all the kind of people who believe that all the glaciers are gonna be gone by 2020, they had to remove that sign, it turned out they're still there, and that we're all gonna be dead in 12 months or something like this, uh, unless we give them all the power, in which case we're gonna live in a utopia. And so you can see that what this is, 
And since this is the state of Tennessee, I can flex a little, I can quote from the Tennessee State Constitution, which I did bother to read. Um, what you see is this is an attempt to create arbitrary power. A small group of people that designated themselves as stakeholders get to decide environmental policy, corporate practices, best practices, and governance policy, and that would go into actual government best practices as well once they get enough power, and then also social justice policy. And so what this is is a creation of arbitrary power. They get to decide how everything is going to work, and they're going to pull people around by their investments, by their pension funds, et cetera, so that they participate, so their score will go up. And in Tennessee, we're not allowed to do that. The second, uh, Article One, Section 2 of the Tennessee State Constitution reads, the government having been instituted for the common benefit, the doctrine of non-resistance against arbitrary power shall be considered slavish, absurd, and to the detriment uh, and destructive of uh, the good and happiness of mankind. So you are required by Tennessee Constitution as, as a Tennessean to stand up against this arbitrary power. So uh, every time I have to wear a mask in an airport, I kind of just say this to myself in my head over and over again. The doctrine of non-resistance non against arbitrary power is slavish, absurd, and destructive of the good and happiness of mankind. And that's a Tennessee constitutional article. It's in fact in our Bill of Rights here in the state. So yes, they are related, theoretically in a kind of a stupid, weird, shoehorned way, and then practically in that it's the same people who believe in both things that are pushing this on us and under the same umbrella, which has the brand name ESG. James, uh, you and I being friends and acquaintances, uh, I like to say that I discovered you in Tennessee 37 years after you moved here because you spoke at the conservative club and said it was one of the first speeches you ever gave in, in Tennessee. But So thank you for being here and thank you for blessing us. Uh, one thing that you didn't tell that I think would be really helpful for a lot of people to know in this room is that you are a reformed liberal. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think that gives you great credibility, especially in this room, about the things that you talk about. Hi, everybody. My name is James. <laughs> Hi, Jake. And I had Trump derangement syndrome. And up until the 2020 election, I have only ever voted for Democrats, ever. And I thought conservatives were all dumb and evil because that's the magic spell that the left has actually very successfully cast on the entire country. I call it the John Stewart effect. <laughs> I blame John Stewart, who, of whom I was a very big fan for a number of years for making this the cultural mainstay under his so-called brand of comedy. But yeah, I was actually a left-leaning academic, which is basically redundant. Um, and then in 2020, I decided, I mean, I'd come, I'd already told this story what I did from like 2016 through 2020. And so I came to realize that while I do believe that we need a healthy left, and that maybe I have some leanings toward what a healthy left would represent in terms of my kind of moral guesses about the world, we do not have a healthy or a liberal left. We have one that's been captured entirely by Marxists. And so I decided that I had to vote for Trump, and I voted Republican top to bottom in the previous election. Uh, and at this point, I've decided that, I mean, I sit back, I try to be a very reflective guy. I, honest to God, will tell you, 
I do not know what the Democratic Party in this country can ever do to regain my trust at this point, and I will probably never vote for another one of them for any reason ever again, yeah. whether I consider myself a conservative or not. Because they have sold this country out worse than anybody in the entire history of the country. They're literally the worst thing that's ever happened because they allowed themselves to be captured by Marxists with whom they've been flirting for a century at least. And so yeah, I'm a reformed left-wing liberal, but I will say that I was a left-wing liberal in the philosophical liberal sense. When we talk about liberalism, I didn't talk about this. What is the biggest defense against communism is it's the liberal principles in the Declaration of Independence that our Constitution is then working to enshrine. And that is that we are endowed by our, we are, we are created equal and endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and I won't say the Jeffersonian confusing thing, I'll say the Lockean thing it came from, property. The reason is very simple. If you've never thought about this, why? If they can't take your life, they can't tell you what you have to believe or think or say. If they can't take your liberty, they can't take, they can't tell you what you have to believe, think, or say. And if they can't depose you of your property, take you out of your home, deprive you of your ability to eat, then they can't tell you what to believe, think, or say. That's the essence of liberalism. So I am not a reformed Lockean liberal. I am a reformed Democratic Party, ignorant, blind, cruising through life in my privilege liberal who hasn't had to think about a single thing or how it actually works in the world and can vote for utopian pie-in-the-sky policies. All right, James, we've got time for one more question. Uh, thank you, James, for being here, pushing the right buttons, pressing into everyone's head words that we all need to hear. I want to thank you for that. Uh, Eric started out this whole evening by talking about how he was working out in his house on a gym listening to you on a podcast. I don't work out, uh, but I would like to listen to you on a podcast. Can you just share with us that podcast access so we can all listen to you in the future? Okay, so somebody else asked if there's a website you can go to. There, I don't think you are about to understand what I'm about to unleash upon your life. Okay, so number one, you can look up my name and then Joe Rogan and find the eight and a half hours that I've talked to Joe Rogan if you want to listen to those, which I don't think are all that interesting, but I'm glad Eric really liked him and listens to him while he gets jacked. <laughs> I have three podcasts, one of which I haven't actually debuted yet, but it's coming. Uh, but the primary podcast that I, I would recommend that you listen to, if you want to hear my in-depth arguments, by the way, they're filled with swear words because I get really mad when I read Marxism. Um, I have a podcast called the New Discourses Podcast. My website is newdiscourses.com. I'm not begging you for money. You can just go there and find the podcast. I record an absurd number. I recorded like almost 200 of these kinds of lectures, some of which are four hours plus, some of which are only like 